All right, we'll go ahead and just get started today with the 132nd Psalm, and then we'll get into some other things. Psalm 132, this is a song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you in the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Heavenly Father, here we are in your glorious presence, and we thank you for the opportunity to meet here and for the uh, kind of gray sky which keeps things cool and keeps the tourists away. We appreciate that, Lord. May you be exalted through everything that happens here today, how we conduct ourselves and how your word is presented. And uh, please just send your spirit upon us and revive us and give us freshness of spirit so that we can proclaim you throughout the week and rejoice in you at our dinner tables and as people come to our homes that we can have fellowship with them and give us the wisdom to turn around and thank you for every good blessing that you give us that comes from your open hand of grace. We love you. We praise you. All glory to you in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, a couple things uh, as far as announcements. Um, uh, always looking for inviters of others. It, it never ceases to amaze me how every week we have about the same number of people, and they're always different people. It never ceases to amaze me. They, there's like a rotation of like three-week intervals where people kind of go around. But uh, anyway, if you uh, know people that would like to sink their uh, toes into the sand and uh, show up at uh, Church on the Beach, uh, please bring them along. And, uh, you know, one thing that I try to tell people when they ask me about this is I tell them in advance, and you can tell them as well, that my sermons are more biblically uh, interpretive rather than life-based. And, you know, some people need to know that because they need life-based sermons. And there's a million churches out there that will give them that. And uh, so I, I try not to get people uh, uh, misled on what we do here. You're going to hear from the Bible about the Bible more than life application. And if you invite somebody, it would be good for you to explain that as well. Um, I would like to, on 10 November, uh, I'm sorry, in the month of November, start having these services at 10 o'clock instead of 1030. Um, I'll go ahead and pen in ink in all the brochures. And I got church on the beach flyers if you want to give them out to anybody. But I would like to start doing that at 10 o'clock instead of 10. And that way, as the tourist season comes in, we'll have more and more people showing up um, out at the beach. And there'll be less and less parking for the people. 
So um, that's what I uh, would like to do, and I'll announce that each week. But I just I know that some people really like to sleep in, and uh, uh, tough. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I would like to uh, pray for our missionaries, which are in Japan this week. We had two missionaries we were pr- praying for last week, and one of them is out of the mission field, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I would like to uh, for us to remember Paul and Elaine Stoll in prayer. We've prayed for them every week since they left. They're in Japan. They're doing wonderful things over there. The uh, snow season in the north of Japan is coming, and it is a brutal snow season. I mean, literally above houses. And shoveling snow daily is something that he has to do, and he is not a young puppy. Uh, And uh, I'm sure that Elaine just sits inside and basks in the warm. So uh, anyway, please keep them both in prayer. Wonderful people doing great things in Japan that we support right from this little church on the beach. And... um, I uh, would like to mention, again, as I have week after week lately, the upcoming elections are uh, a basically a referendum on what way our nation is going to head. And uh, I, I'm not apologetic that I am a biblically-based biblically preacher and that there is one party that has deviated from the Bible. They no longer hold any moral uh, uh, standing at all, in my opinion. They have rejected the uh, Defense of Marriage Act, and they have openly uh, condoned homosexuality, and they are against any attempt to reduce or eliminate abortion when abortion, according to the Bible, is murder. Therefore, I would like you to keep that in mind during the upcoming elections. I will bring that up again here in uh, the sermon today. And um, I'd like to note that this is the 44th sermon in the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 20 today in something unusual. We'll be doing the entire chapter instead of just a couple verses, and that's because it is one context. So uh, have that in mind. Um, we have somebody that regularly attends church on the beach here uh, that I went to school with, and she has got some real medical problems right now. And uh, so I would like you to remember, I'll just give her first name is Darlene, and uh, she's really struggling, and not just medical problems, but it seems like everything is coming against her at once. And I feel very, very bad for her right now. She's really struggling, and uh, she hasn't been able to make it in quite a while because of everything that's going on in her life. Um, But she's trying to be upbeat and remain positive, so just remember to keep Darlene in prayer. And as I said, we no longer need to pray for our missionary, Jim, because Jim is back. And last week I, I announced that I had no idea that this guy had even left. He just took off. He says, I want to be a missionary, and please pray about that. And I figured, okay, I'm praying for direction. Next thing I know, I hear he's out in the Midwest. He's driven to like 15 states. He went all through the Midwest, all over the South, and uh, he just he, he went without taking any money for, from anybody. He just simply left and uh, was stepping out on faith alone. He's got a truck, which he calls the prayer truck, and people just come and they, they write prayers all over it. And as the seasons and the rain and the heat and everything uh, remove the prayers, people write more over them. And uh, as I said uh, last week, uh, I, I, I'm looking at uh, Facebook, and here's a picture of a cop signing his prayer thing out in between Arkansas and Tennessee. And I thought, what is he doing there? And uh, so I, I, I said, what's going on? And well, he's out there just driving around, and he's got some unbelievable stories of how he met people in their time of crisis and need. And it just happened to be these, these beautiful appointments from God that he was fulfilling. And uh, I'll tell you one story that he gave me that uh, it's just typical how God works. He went all the way around, over 8,000 miles in this truck, totally on faith. And um, he got 21 miles from his house, I think he said, and he ran out of gas. 
And so he's sitting there saying, Lord, you know, I've done all this, and I come back just to find out I've ran out of gas just before I get home. And he's sitting there whining to himself about it the way that I would do. And uh, all of a sudden he realizes that he had a gallon and a half of gas in the back of his car that he had kept just in case he needed to help somebody along the road or whatever. Well, it helped him out, and it got him exactly where he needed to go. So praise God for Jim, his faithfulness, and for everybody that he ministered to. My hair is literally standing up on me at what this guy did all by himself without any any support from anybody except as he went along people would just say can i help out with this and they give him a couple bucks for gas or something absolutely astonishing what happened and my hat is off to jim it absolutely is so uh thank you for your faithfulness to the lord and uh if you go again maybe i'll go with you because it's just i did this a couple years ago i went to all 50 states and preached at all 50 capitals and you know it just the same thing would happen i'd show up i'd go down a wrong street and you'd meet somebody that needed to hear about the Lord right then. And that's just the way that those things happened. So uh, hats off to Jim. Um, all right, I guess um, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and do our New Testament reading for the week. And that would be Romans 6, verses 14 through 22. And I'm just going to go quickly through it as I always do. I don't give a lot of commentary, just what pops off of the top of my head. And I don't prepare for this. Um, we just started with the beginning of Romans and we're working our way through the New Testament in a weekly reading. Here we go. Uh, Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul was saying that the law shows us of our sinful state. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. He's removed us from the law. We are in Christ and we are not under the law. And so the point that he is making is that we are not under the dominion of sin. We are now under the dominion of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And his answer is certainly not. Of course not. We have been removed from one dead state to a live state. And that living state is within the body of Jesus Christ. And so we're to live apart from sin. Um, verse 16 says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey. You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So that explains why we are not to sin when we uh, move into Jesus Christ positionally. Verse 17, but th God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Jesus Christ is the only mode or means of being saved from the body of sin. Jesus himself said that in John 3.18, which I repeat week after week. Those who do not believe in the Son are condemned already. It is our default position as being in Adam and condemned. What Jesus Christ came to do was to move us from that default position to the new position, which is life through Jesus Christ apart from sin. Uh, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I said this to somebody just a week ago. You are slave to something. Everybody is a slave to something. We are either a slave to sin or we are a slave to righteousness. And there is no in-between and there is no other position. We are all slaves to something. I would much rather be a slave of Jesus Christ. And my email reflects that, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, because that's where I am positionally. I gave my life to him. He accepted that through the blood of his cross. And now I am a slave to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves of righteousness to holiness. We're to move, it's called sanctification. You come to Jesus Christ, that means you're justified. You are no longer guilty before the law. You are justified and free from that guilt. But there's a process that we go through, and that's called sanctification. We grow in that, hopefully, as Christians, to the point where we become holy. Now, that can happen either in our life, working to that position when we die, or it can happen immediately when we die, because we will immediately be glorified and in the presence of the Lord, but we will lose rewards at his judgment seat for not having lived for him as we should, based on what he did for us. But either way, we are to move forward in righteousness leading to holiness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. As I said, you're either a slave of sin or a slave to righteousness, and you are free from the body of righteousness because you are in the body of death. Um, verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? If you've come to Jesus Christ, and maybe not everybody here has, but if you have, you can certainly look back on your previous life and say, I am ashamed of this and this and this. And if you're Charlie Garrett of this and this and this and this and this. I mean, there's a lot of things that we are ashamed of before we came to Christ. And uh, he says, um, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but, and he's making a, a negative, now he's going to make a positive based on that. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have, uh, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. And then he closes verse uh, chapter uh, 23, uh, chapter 6 with verse 23, which is part of what is known as the Romans road. It's a way of telling people of their sinful state and leading them to Jesus Christ. And it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is why we die. And that is also a text reason as to why Jesus Christ came out of the grave. He never sinned. He wasn't born in sin because he did not inherit Adam's sin. He was born of the Holy Spirit and of a woman. Sin transfers through man, and so he didn't inherit Adam's sin, and he also never sinned as he led his life. He defeated the devil in the three temptations. He overcame the power of the law, which is the power of sin. He died sinless, and therefore, because the wages of sin is death, Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that it was impossible for death to hold him because he had never sinned. If you see the logic there, it is impeccable what God has done in his own son, Jesus Christ. It is absolutely astonishing. So that is our New Testament reading for the week. And uh, I have one more Psalm to read you as I always do before the, um, before the um, sermon, we get into that. And that'll be the 133rd Psalm. This is one of my favorite Psalms in the Bible. It is uh, uh, beautiful in its uh, symbolism and uh, what it's saying. And uh, it's a psalm of ascent. It's written by David. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head which went down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the hems of his garments. It is as if the dew of Hermon were descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And I want to explain that to you because it's such a short psalm and it's so beautiful in what it says. It says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, I had already decided on this psalm for this sermon today. And this week, as happens every week, I talked to Sergio, who used to attend here before he and his wife moved to Atlanta. 
and um, we, uh, my wife bought me an iPad, so now we FaceTime each other instead of Skyping each other. And um, yes, I actually iPad, um, which is surprising. But uh, anyway, Sergio was talking to me, and he, uh, then he sent me an email in addition to what we were talking about. And he said these words, and it, it almost made me break down. He said, I know now why I miss you so much. He was reading this psalm in Hebrew. He's from Israel. He speaks Hebrew. And um, he, uh, he said, I've read the psalm and we sang it growing up. I've known it my whole life and I never sat down and considered its words. He said, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And what that word is, is Shevet Achim. It means to sit together. This is not the community of believers all around the world. And I'm a brother of this person in Japan and this person in Kenya and this person in Slavia. Uh, her whatever you know one of those Slavic states trying to say Bosnia Herzegovina and I'm not doing it very well but what this is specifically speaking about is people sitting in each other's presence you are dwelling together you are sitting together in unity and then it's explained that that state being in another's presence and I'll tell you that when I read that from Sergio I went back to him and I said well then we could say behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to jump off the dock together because every Sunday after this service, he'd come to my house and he and his wife would spend the day with me because he did all the video work, which I, I now do as soon as I leave here on Sunday and it takes me until Monday morning. But um, he did that and because he did that, we would just go jump off the dock and have a fun day together. And uh, so that concept of being together in each other's presence, in the presence of the Lord like we are now, David explains it is like the precious oil upon the head. And what that means is that the high priest was ordained by pouring oil on top of him. They just took a horn of oil and they dumped it on him. They also did this to anoint the king of Israel. And this is a lifetime commission for the high priest of Israel. It is the greatest honor of anybody in Israel and it's prefiguring the work of Jesus Christ. He becomes the mediator between God and man. And that oil is symbolizing his position and his authority and that is what it is like to dwell together in unity is to have the highest honor poured upon you and not only poured upon you but it runs down upon the beard and then it says even Aaron's beard who was the first high priest of Israel and not only down upon the beard but it goes all the way down to the hem of his garments he smells like this fragrant oil that God has ordained for the high priest alone and that oil that is on him remains his entire life. And he becomes a prophet of God. When he speaks, it is in prophecy. Anytime when he's fulfilling his duties as the high priest of Israel. That is what it is like to be in the presence of other believers directly. And the reason why I'm saying this is because whether you attend church on the beach or whether you attend somewhere else, attend. Because that is where the true fellowship and communion comes in, is being with other believers. And I understand that there are some people that make Church on the Beach their church based on the video. And that is wonderful. And I'm glad they do because they either can't get to another church or there is something missing from that. But um, I'm missing from their life where they can't actually participate with other people. But they still need to get out with other believers and they need to share in that manner. And then it even goes further and it says, it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. And what that means is the dew of Hermon, Hermon is a mountain on the Syria-Lebanon border. And if you go to Israel and you stand in Tel Dan, where I have stood, and you look out, you can see Mount Hermon. It's right there, and it's this giant mountain that stays snow-capped all year long. But of course, during the winter, it fills up with snow. 
and then in the uh, melting season, that dew that settled down on the mountain starts rushing down into the Jordan Valley. It rushes all the way down into the land where God has chosen for himself, Jerusalem. And that water is the life-giving water of the people. And without that life-giving water, there is no, uh, there's no continuance of the cycle of life. And this, again, is what David is saying like, uh, saying our fellowship is like. It is like the dew of Hermon that is descending upon the mountains of Zion. And he finishes up with, for there, in the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And what that means is that salvation of the world came through one particular place on this planet at one particular time in human history through one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And that blessing that comes through Jesus Christ is the blessing that he is speaking of. And that is what it is like to David to be in the presence of other believers and sharing with them. So I hope that you'll remember that in your heart as you are fellowshipping with other believers is that it is the highest joy that we have on this earth when we are in the presence of the Lord with other believers until the day when the Lord comes and we're in his presence. How wonderful is the 133rd Psalm. All right, here we go. We're going to go ahead and get into our... Uh, uh, regular uh, sermon for the week, which is Genesis 20, verses 1 through 17. And I know a couple ladies over here that did read it over the past week. And um, uh, we'll uh, evaluate those verses in detail as we go. But as I always do, before we get into the actual sermon, I like to do this day in history. And uh, today is 7 October. This day in history, we start out with 1765. There were nine American colonies which sent a total of 28 delegates to New York City for the Stamp Act Congress. The delegates adopted the Declaration of Rights and Grievances. And what that was, the Stamp Act, was something that the uh, British Parliament had decided was going to be levied on all of its colonies. And that meant that any piece of paper almost, almost anything that was used to publish anything or to print anything, had a little stamp on it. And you paid a tax on that stamp. So if you printed newspapers or magazines or you know, maybe even letters to friends. I don't know how detailed it was, but almost all paper had the stamp on there. And not only was it required that they paid the tax, but they paid it to England and they paid it in English currency, not in American currency. And so it was a very oppressive tax. It was what we would call today redistribution of wealth because America was a great uh, center of industry. It was people building things and actually getting out and working in their hands, working in the fields. And England was sitting there fat, dumb, and happy receiving the benefits of that. And you know where I'm going with this because we're heading here in the next month and a half. Do we want to have a government that is going to redistribute from people who are not willing to work from people who are willing to work? And now I understand that people got down on, uh, what's his name, Romney, for saying 47% of the people will never vote for me. But he was right. There are a certain number of people that will never vote for anybody except for those who will give them something. And the Bible is very clear in the book of uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, or maybe it's 2 Thessalonians. He says, if you do not work, you do not eat. Now, that is not speaking of charity because the church has always been charitable to take care of people. But it is saying that if you are not willing to get up and do something, you deserve nothing. And that is a biblical tenet that goes all the way back to the Old Testament and all the way through. God wants us to be industrious and working. And he I, I got to tell you, I, if it is the God that I understand, he does not appreciate wealth redistribution. He appreciates charity. And there's a big difference between the two. So anyway, there you go. That's um, 1765. 
1777, during the American Revolution, we had the Second Battle of Saratoga. It began this day. And um, I always bring in battles because there are people that got up that day and they put on their boots and they put on their hat and they carried their gun out there and they said, I'm going to go out and do a great battle. And they never came home. They never kissed their wife again. They never saw their child or their brother or whatever again. And we do not know our appointed time. And that's why I am such an advocate of telling you that if you do not know Jesus Christ, your eternity is going to be far different than the eternity of somebody who does. And you are going to meet him one way or another because we are all going to die. So I would ask that if you have not considered where you stand positionally in Christ, that you would do it today. Um, all those people gone off to glory. 1913, we have Ford's Highland Park Auto Factory began running a continuously moving line when the chassis was added to the process. So uh, they took the chassis of the car and they added it into everything else. And now the car started with nuts and bolts and it went all the way down the uh, assembly line and it came off as a complete car for the first time in human history. And it was something that uh, was developed by an, one individual. It was developed by him. He invested his hard work. He invested his industry. He invested his livelihood into this. And today, once again, we have a president that would say to Henry Ford, you didn't build that. And I got to tell you, that is an offense to the people that take their efforts and their time and their devotion and their dedication to move forward the progress in human history. And there are other people that take that away from them and they say they didn't deserve it at all when they're the only ones that earned it. So uh, I'm trying not to get too political today, as you can tell. Everybody here knows that, uh, especially my son knows this, I do not like sports. I never bring up sports. But today I saw something that happened on this day in history that was so comical and yet so sad that I thought I'd bring this up to you. Um, the Georgia Tech football team in 1918 defeated Cumberland College 222 to zero. And they threw, uh, they never threw the ball once. They carried the ball for 978 yards. And I've never even heard of Cumberland College. They may have closed their doors the next day out of embarrassment. I don't know. But I've got to tell you, just what a funny thing to read and what a sad thing to read at the same time. In 1985, the United States announced on this day, October 7th, that it would no longer automatically comply with world court decisions. Thank goodness for that, because world court decisions are like UN decisions. They are always at variance with the goals and directives of most of uh, the uh, people in America. And if we were bound by the world court, then our soldiers would be uh, sent off for uh, execution by a government that uh, thought that they did something wrong. And uh, so these are the kind of things that are going on in the world. And we have a president that's trying to get us back into these world court decisions and under the influence of the United Nations. And I would like to assure everybody here, because I get this email all the time, is that uh, gun rights are going to be taken away because President Obama is going to sign a treaty, uh, the uh, small arms treaty, and when he does, they're going to take away our gun rights. And that is not how the United States of America works. The United States of America has to approve treaties that were signed by the president, and that takes a two-thirds majority in the U.S. Senate. And that will never happen in the U.S. Senate. So that will never become law, and I want everybody here that does carry a gun to know that you will not lose your right to carry a gun, at least under that premise. You may lose it under some other premise. But uh, as I've always said, the Second Amendment of the United States is the only thing that defends the First Amendment of the United States, which allows us to come out to church on the beach and 
preach and to talk and to meet freely and also freedom of the press and everything else. So um, I'm uh, a very big supporter of that amendment, regardless of whether I carry a gun or not. That's irrelevant. And finally, one other thing happened in 1951. A guy named John Cougar Mellencamp was born. And if you're in my generation, then uh, you uh, know who he is. And if not, then it doesn't matter to you anyway. But he was a he is a, a, a rock and roll singer. And uh, I, I just heard his name and his song started to fall into my head. And uh, anyway, 1951, John Cougar Mellencamp. So what I'm going to do here real quickly uh, before we get right into the sermon is to read you the passages so that you have a reference about what I'm going to be speaking about. This is Genesis chapter 20, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 17, which is very rare, but the entire chapter is its own context. So I have to do the whole chapter. And what that means also is that it's going to take about four and a half hours instead of one hour to do the sermon. So um, you just have to... Uh, you know, bear with me. I'm kidding. I'm going to do exactly the same length as I always do. It's, uh, I think, 18 pages, which is about 48 minutes normally. All right. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south, meaning the Negev, and uh, dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and stayed in Gerar. Now, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, did, uh, yes, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What? What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing. And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. Verse 17, So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all of the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife. Today we're going to look at this exciting passage that I just read. It's a story about Abraham, and on the surface, it's very, very similar. It's very similar to the story that we looked at in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham went to the south and then he went down to Egypt. And until I started typing this sermon, and I've read this passage many, many, many times in my life, and I've actually taught it in Bible uh, classes, but until I actually started preparing the sermon, I never realized how different 
these two stories are, and they are very, very different. In fact, this entire story from the beginning to the end is different, and it serves a different purpose in our understanding of why things are the way they are in the world, even the world that we live in to this day, such as with the modern nation of Israel. I'm glad to have learned this when I prepared for this particular sermon because it's just opened it up to me in a wonderful way. That'll bring us to our text verse for today, which is Psalm 34, it's verses 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Because God's eyes are on the righteous, and because his ears are open to their cry, we need to make sure that we give him all of the glory, and all of the honor, and all of the respect and praise that he alone is due. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought out of these 18 verses is that which has been. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. In chapter 18, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of background so that you know where we are in the Bible. In chapter 18, Abraham had petitioned the Lord for the people that were living in Sodom. He asked the Lord to spare that city if only 50 righteous people could be found. And eventually he talked the Lord down to 10 righteous people. And we went through why he did that. However, as we saw in the next couple of sermons, Sodom was destroyed, but Lot and his family escaped. And then right afterwards, we read this in chapter 19. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. This for all intents and purposes, what I just read is where we pick up today in chapter 20. We know this because the very first verse that I just read is, and Abraham journeyed from there to the south. In other words, it's implied that we go back before the account of Lot in chapter 19, as this was only an interlude in the life of Abraham. And I've explained this before in sermons that what God is doing in the Bible is he is working on a funnel. There is one group of people he's working in one direction, and then he has these little stories that come in and interact with the funnel. And this interaction, this story about Lot, is a part of that. The narrative then jumps completely over Lot here in the terminology. And what I want to do is to remind you about that interlude that we talked about last week. Lot went into a cave after Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown. They went to a little town called Zoar. Then they went into a cave. He left the, the town of Zoar, went into this cave in the mountains, and he was there with his two daughters. And when he was in this cave with his two daughters, for reasons which were very uh, carefully explained, the two daughters got him drunk and they slept with him so that they could become pregnant. And those two women and their two sons, which were named Moab and Ben-Ami, actually became ancestors of Jesus Christ. One came through Ruth, the Moabitess. If you know the story of Ruth, she was from Moab, the, uh, the uh, son of the oldest daughter. And then the other one was Rehoboam, the king of Israel, who was the son of Solomon. And she had married a girl from Ammon, which was from the second son of Lot. His name was Ben-Ami. And so Solomon married this woman from Ammon. They had Rehoboam and became the king of Israel. And both of these people, Ruth and 
Rehoboam are recorded in gene Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And what God did is he inserted Lot's account, as he has done several times already in the book of Genesis, for us to look deeper into those accounts and to understand that he is, God is the chosen, he is the uh, God of the chosen line, which leads from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham, later to Isaac, later to his son Israel, and then into the 12 sons of Israel. This is the chosen line, and that leads directly to Jesus Christ. But these interludes are given to us to show us that he is also the God of the people outside of this chosen line. And he will use people from all groups and all nations, not only to lead us to Jesus, as we saw last week, but also in the furtherance of the gospel right now. Because we have people from every line of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that are proclaiming the gospel all over the world. And not only that, but they do it in the book of Acts as well. And that premise leads us to the thought so much for racism. God is no respecter of persons. And that is the lesson that we are to see in these interludes that affect the main line, is that all people are in an equal standing with God, whether you're black or whether you're white or whether you're Asian or whatever else. This is what we are to learn from these particular concepts going on in the Bible. With today's return to Abraham, we see him move from where he is in Hebron off to the south. And there are several reasons that have been given as to why he made this move. And I'm going to give those to you so you can think them through. One is that he just simply couldn't bear to look from Hebron down towards the south because that's where Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah are. And it was a painful memory to him. Another is that because he was in Hebron and Lot had moved out of there to Sodom and now uh, Sodom is destroyed, that it would weaken Abraham's testimony around the people of Hebron. And he didn't want that, so he just simply moved away from them. And another theory is that because of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters, then the people of Hebron wouldn't like Abraham because of that. And so he moved because of that. And if you are reading your Bible and your commentary says any of those reasons, just put an X through them because that is not why those are in there. They're not well thought out. They don't make any sense, especially the last one, because we just noted that the story about Lot is an interlude in the life of Abraham, and there's no gap between these two accounts that we're looking at before and today. The reason why this probably took place, there are two reasons that I could think of. The first is that he is moving simply because he is a pilgrim. He lives in tents with his dwelling people, and there's about a thousand of them in, in the camp, and they're looking for better pastures, which is what he's already done throughout the land several times, because as the rain cycles change in the land of Israel today, or Canaan of the past, you moved to accommodate the, uh, uh, the animals that you were raising. And so that is probably one of the reasons. And the second one is that divine providence actually impelled him to move to where he is going to. If you take those two reasons and you combine them together, they make much more sense. And the reason why is because when we were back in Genesis 12 and he did exactly the same thing, he first moved to the south and then he moved to Egypt, it was because of a famine. And famines come from the divine hand of God. This move then is like the last. God is directing his chosen servant, Abraham. And he's doing it to teach us more about what he is doing in human history. And I believe that this move that he is directing Abraham on is given to us to set in, motions, in motion events which will eventually lead to the fixed established markers of Israel's rights to that land. 
Okay. Remember, it is the son of promise, whoever son of promise is coming from Abraham, which we know to be Isaac. It is he who is going to inherit the land and his son after him and then his sons after him. The other children of Abraham are moved away from this line of promise. But Israel's rights to the land are being secured right now in this account that we're looking at today. God is working through all people in human history, as we've talked about already in the book of Romans, to secure rights for us as sons of Abraham through faith. In other words, if we call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says we become a son of Abraham by faith. And those are the only true sons of Abraham. But he is working through this chosen line of people to establish land rights and other rights of the people of Israel. And once again, that's why we're seeing this funnel of God working through a single line of people to lead us to Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we have these interludes which are affecting it. Those are the two concepts. One is to make us sons of Abraham through faith. Another is to secure Israel's rights to the land. Now, the place where he is moving to is called Gerar, and it is said to be between Kadesh and Shur. If you go back to Genesis 14, verse 7, Kadesh is mentioned. And then if you go back to Genesis 16, verse 7, Shur is mentioned. If you look at a map of it today, it is kind of between where Gaza and Beersheba are on the map. And at the time, it was a very well-watered place, and therefore Abraham is moving down there with his crops and with his families. Verse 2, now Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. This is exactly the same thing that he did back in chapter 12, as I said, when he went down to Egypt, and the exact same thing results by doing this. Pharaoh, when he was in Egypt, took Sarah into his home. And now Abimelech, king of Gerar, takes Sarah into his home again. I'm not going to go through all of the thoughts that I went through on chapter, in chapter 12 about why Abraham's actions were not wrong. I defend very clearly why they were not wrong. But almost every commentary that you ever read on those accounts, Genesis 12 and the one we're looking at today, will say things like he's sinful, he's lacking faith, he's lacking, you know, just morals. That is not correct. And once again, if you read those type of commentaries, I want you to put an X to them because they are not correct. The Bible never, never, never rebukes Abraham for what he did in this account or in the previous account or at any other time. And because of that, what God does not call into question, we need to not call it into question as well. We need to have faith that God is working through these accounts. I want to read you one of the commentaries, though, so that you can see how commentators of the past have treated Abraham for what happened here. This is from a group of people called Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. They say, fear of the people among whom he was, tempted him to equivocate, finding fault. His conduct was highly culpable. It was deceit, deliberate and premeditated. There was no sudden pressure upon him. It was the second offense of the kind. It was distrust of God in every way surprising, and it was calculated to produce injurious effects on the heathen around. Its mischievous tendency was not long in being developed. At least eight times they have taken Abraham, this man of faith, and they have maligned him for something that they have no idea what they are talking about. This is a man of faith, and God always, even from Jesus' own mouth, calls him the father of the faith. The shallowness of commentaries like this neglect to take into account two things. The first is, as I just said, Abraham is never, never in the Bible thought of as anything except a man of faith. Never in any context is he noticed lacking that faith. And secondly, in chapter 14, he is the one who overthrew four armies from the east, including their kings and all of the people. 
by himself with his 318 trained men. It would be the people in the region who were afraid of Abraham, not the other way around. Verse 2 continues, And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Sarah's now about 89 years old, and Isaac is promised to be born in the next year. With her in King Abimelech's house, it could be problematic. And what we have to note here is that it does not say that she was beautiful like it was 25 years ago when she went down into uh, Pharaoh's house. It never mentions that. And because it doesn't, the reason why Abimelech, the king of Gerar, is taking her is most likely to align himself with Abraham, not because he wanted a beautiful wife. And we know this because Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and they were all given to him as alliances with other kingdoms. This is the way people worked back then. If this is Abraham's sister, he's making an alliance by taking her into his house. And he may have actually even taken Sarah without ever telling Abraham, because this is the way they worked back then. They just go and say, well, we're making an alliance with Abraham, and you're a woman, so we're taking you into our home. So Abraham may not have even been aware of what's going on at this point. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. It is God in this verse, Elohim, who is mentioned. This is the creator from Genesis 1.1. Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created. That is who is being mentioned here. And he does it by coming to Abimelech in a dream. And so what he is doing is he is expressing himself as the eternal power, which is prior to creation, because Elohim had to be there if he created. Bereshit bara Elohim. He was there before the creation. So he's that eternal power, but he is also the power who formed man, because Abimelech is a man, and he's speaking to him in a dream. And he is also the one who is sustaining creation at this current time because he's active working in Abimelech's head. So this is something that we need to learn from this particular verse. And in the next three verses, we are going to learn a great deal about how God deals with men simply by the titles that God uses of himself. Coming in a dream is something that happens throughout the entire Bible. And I want to assure you that when it happens, there is no doubt in the Bible that it was God who spoke to the person. And the reason why I say that is because it happens almost every week of my life, if not certainly every month, where I get somebody email me and they say, I've had a dream and I think God is speaking to me. And if they say, I think, then I assure you God is not speaking to them. What it is is their dinner and they went to bed thinking about God and the two got mixed up in their brain because it is not God speaking to them. There is no doubt when God speaks to a human being. And that should be a lesson to you because when you read your Bible, this is God's word written for us. And if you're not reading this book and saying, God is speaking to me personally, then there is a problem with you, not with God. Keep that in mind because this is being relayed to us right from this one verse about God coming to him in a dream and him knowing that it is God. Verse four, but Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? This verse and one that is coming are specifically put here to let us know that the child to be born to Sarah in the future came from Abraham, and it has not come from anyone involved with her in the camp at this time. He hadn't come near her since she came into his harem. In response, he says, this is Abimelech speaking to God, Lord, and he uses the term Adonai, 
he said, where is it? Um, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? In other words, the term Adonai is a personal term that you use when speaking to God. You don't use his name, you use this personal term, Adonai. And that means that he has a knowledge of the true God. Even if he has false gods in his home, he knows that this is the true God, not just one of many gods. He is the one true creator God who is before creation, who formed man, and who is active since creation. Adonai, he asks, will you slay a righteous nation also? And the question for all of you is, why would he say that? Would you slay a righteous, righteous nation also? Anybody think that one up? The reason why is because Sodom had just been destroyed. That's the last account. And I guarantee you that the sulfur is still smoke, uh, stinking in the air. The smoke is still coming out of the furnace. And he is saying, would you do to us what you did to them? He is making a contrast between Sodom and his own city. And he's basing it on an assumption that they have done nothing deserving of God's wrath, just like the people of Sodom had. And in, this includes the matter in which is happening right now with him and Abraham's wife, Sarah. Verse 5, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. At some point after his arrival, Abraham had to have spoken to Abimelech and he introduced his sister to him. And it was probably right then, right at that moment, because he had already heard about Abraham and his great defeat of the four kings from the east, that he decided he was going to take Sarah in order to make an alliance with them. And to this point, there was no fault because they spoke the truth. And Abimelech took Sarah, as he says, in the integrity of my heart and in the righteousness of my hands. He's telling God that he is guiltless in what's occurred. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is the Lord's eyes are upon the righteous. And that comes right from our text first for today. Verse six, and God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. In this verse, God through the Bible calls himself Ha Elohim. Ha simply means the, he is the God. Verse three simply called him Elohim. Verse four, Abimelech calls him Adonai, the word which is used when speaking in a personal manner to God. And now it says the God spoke to him. Only after Abimelech addresses him as Adonai does he, the Bible call him the God. And the reason why this is included is to note the distinction between the true God and any false God. There is one God and Abimelech understands this. And this verse, like so many in the Bible, says so much for all religions being true. There is one God and there is one way to approach him. There is not Krishna as a God. There is not Buddha as a God. There is not Allah as a God. There is one God. And he kept Abimelech from sinning against him by keeping him from touching Sarah. In other words, what's happening here is God's plans and God's purposes are being carried out and nothing can thwart them. When we sin personally against God as individuals, it is because they are from our own free will choices and they are sins that God has already factored into the equation. However, if we sin, and it is going to cause something to thwart his plans and purposes, 
he will either actively or passively work against that so that it doesn't affect his plan of redemption. I hope you understand how this is working with God because this is very, very important as human beings to understand that we are guilty of our own sins and they are freely done against God. And only when they affect what he is doing will he stop those sins from occurring. Verse 7, Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. This is the very first time in the entire Bible that a person is called a prophet. But I want to assure you that it is not the first person in the Bible to hold the gift of prophecy. That honor goes to Abel, because in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says that Abel, along with a number of other people, were prophets. They spoke prophecy. And so even though he is the first person termed a prophet, he is not actually the first prophet. Now, God uses prophets in several ways. I'm going to give you two of them so you can kind of understand what he's doing. The first is he may use a prophet to speak of the future concerning what's coming. And this would be like Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, I'm going to destroy uh, Jerusalem if you guys don't repent. Okay, that is one way of using a prophet. A second way is he may use him like a car. In other words, the driver is in control of the car and that car moves wherever he wants it to go. Ultimately, God is in control of what is occurring in this verse, and he's using Abraham like that car to affect his purposes towards Abimelech. In this case, it is the first recorded use of his prophetic office, meaning Abraham, in the Bible, and it's the first time he's recorded as a prophet in the Bible. But rather than speaking about God to men, what he is doing is God is saying that he will speak to God about men. In other words, he is praying to God on behalf of Abimelech if Abimelech lets Sarah go. And so what it is, rather than just being a prophetic office, this is really important actually, is that he is working in a office as a prophet, but also as a priest. It goes back to kind of what I talked to you about um, Aaron, the high priest. He is the mediator between God and man. And Abraham is working as a prophet, but he's also working as a priest. And what does that do? That prefigures him as a, or that makes him a prefigure of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the true prophet and he is the true priest. So, verse 8, Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. It says here, Abimelech rose early in the morning. And I hope that you can see here the destruction of Sodom being referred to from the previous verses because it was as the sun was rising that God destroyed Sodom and it says that Abraham rose early in the morning to see what would happen. It is as if Abimelech here knows exactly what is coming if he doesn't get this matter resolved right away. And so he calls all of his people together to make sure that nobody, and that means nobody touches this woman. And he probably did this for a couple of reasons. The first would be because they probably counseled him to take her in the first place. They're saying, hey man, go grab this guy's sister and then you will have an alliance with her. And so by doing that, he is saying, we need to make sure that we don't make any more errors with this. God is going to destroy us if we do not let this woman go. Verse nine, and Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. 
Some scholars, once again, take this particular verse and they say that Abimelech is rebuking Abraham because of the thing that he did. But I got to tell you what, the Bible doesn't even imply this, doesn't even imply it. And based on the previous verse where God came and said to Abimelech, you're a dead man if you touch this guy's wife, he'd be a stupid or he'd be a knucklehead if he was to go and rebuke Abraham when God just threatened his own life. What he does here is he uses the plural us. What have you done to us? Because as the Bible shows time and time and time again, the wicked actions of the king bring about judgment on the entire kingdom. And that is a very good lesson for us. Once again, I'm bringing in our political system. Coming up in a month and a half, we have a choice to make. And this choice, it has to be made by each one of us. And we will be held accountable for the moral decisions that we make in our vote. We have one person that wants to return actually to the sins of Sodom. That is his agenda. And that is what Sodom was destroyed for. And we have another party. I don't really particularly care for the individual, but we have a party that is working against us. And this is exactly what is happening here. The king is making a mistake and the entire kingdom is going to be judged for it. If we make the same mistake here, we are going to be asking the very same question pretty soon. What have you done to us? This is not a rebuke of Abraham, I assure you. It is a plea of innocence made in the most pious manner possible. These guys are terrified and they want to know what have we done to Abraham to have him set us up like this. And as a comparison, I will read you Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7, when Jeremiah speaks to the Lord in almost the same manner. He says, oh Lord, you deceived me and I was deceived. You overpowered me and I prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. I can assure you that Jeremiah was not rebuking the Lord and these people are not rebuking Abraham. Verse 10, then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? Because of the supposed deception, Abimelech really, really wants to know, you know, why? Why have you done this? And what you can do here is you can imagine yourself having a friend and your friend says, hey, I've got a piece of property I want to sell you. And you've never seen it, but you trust your friend. And you say, okay, I'll buy that piece of property. And then you go with him to see it and you notice that it's on a cliff and it's continuously falling off and you're losing all the property. And you think, what have you done this for? Why have you done this to me? That's what he's asking because he is standing on his own precipice. He's looking back at this giant pit in the ground called Sodom and he wants to know from Abraham, why have you done this thing to me? Our third thought today, thus she was rebuked. Verse 11, and Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. Now I said earlier that the people of the land would fear Abraham and not the other way around. And this seems to make that sound wrong. But if you think it through, there is a difference between somebody coming and raiding somebody unexpectedly as opposed to when you're prepared for battle. If they knew that Sarah was his wife, they may abduct her and kill him. And by doing that, she would become a symbol of the victory over him. And by doing this, the entire clan, and as I said, it's about a thousand people in Abraham's camp, they would be subject to Abimelech. And this is going to be proven true in just a couple verses from here. As far as why he told them that she is my sister, Abraham is as direct as an arrow going through their heart. He said, surely the fear of God is not in this place. Abraham has been in Canaan long enough to know that polytheism and idolatry are the norm. And where this is true, there is no fear 
of the true God because there's a reliance on the false gods. Abraham knows this and he speaks accordingly. And once again, we have a perfect parallel of our nation today because we have people that trust in horoscopes and we have people that trust in tarot cards and we have people that go out and do Zen Buddhism and they do all of these crazy things. And by doing these things, what they are doing is they are putting their trust in those things and it takes away our trust in the true God. And then the people of God that hold to the Bible, the God of Israel, who redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ, are now in fear of the people that are doing these things. And that is exactly what is happening in our nation. And we need to keep these things in mind. And we're not to belittle people. They can do whatever they want. Go ahead and pray to Buddha if you want. I don't care. It's a piece of stone. It's not going to do you any good, but go ahead and do it. What we need to do is lead them to an understanding of Jesus Christ. But they have every right to do that. But when they do, they lose their own personal knowledge of the true creator. Verse 12, but indeed, she truly is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Once again, it is astonishing to see how much misrepresentation there is on this single verse. I'm going to read it to you again. Listen carefully. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Sarah is the daughter of Terah, Abraham's father, but she has a different mother. Nothing could be clearer from that particular verse. But in order to try to alleviate some supposed wrongdoing by marrying his own sister, Jewish and even later Christian commentators say that Sarah is actually Abraham's niece, not his sister. And this is because the law, and talking about the law of Moses, forbids the marrying of one sister. But there are two problems that are associated with this. The first is that the law of Moses came afterward, and so it doesn't apply. That's like putting the cart here, putting the horse here, and saying, okay, horse, get going, push the cart. That is not how it works. And secondly, this is not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says that she is his sister. She is the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. A second major problem that people find here is that uh, Abraham is directly at fault. They try to find fault and sin in him by telling him that she is only his sister and not his wife. And what that does is it elevates intent above reality. And I'll give you a perfect example so you know what I'm talking about. Hate crimes. I go over and I kill this person, and I don't mean you personally, I'm just saying over here. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, they're a straight person. And I kill this person, and they're a black or a homosexual or something. And all of a sudden, intent is brought in when it's the same crime. I have committed murder and my life is forfeit. And yet they, they find a distinction that is elevating intent above reality. And that's what people are trying to do with Abraham here. They're trying to do that. And it is also keeping him from, or actually asking him to disclose something that would cost him his life. In this case, keeping the knowledge that this is his wife hidden is more important. And I got to tell you what, there are many, many examples in the Bible. I could probably think of five of them right now off the top of my head where people lie in the Bible and they are not only con commended for it, but the Bible looks on them later favorably because of those lies. And I'm going to give you one example. It's from the book of Joshua when the Israelites are about to go over the, Can over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And before they do, Joshua sends in two spies and those spies go in and they search out the land. They're trying to figure out, you know, the military prowess of the people and all of this stuff, how to attack the city. They get to the uh, city of Jericho. 
They go into the city and they're looking it around and they come up to Rahab the harlot's house. And she knows who they are and she says, you know what? I want to make a deal with you. I will hide you because here comes the king. They're banging on the door looking for these two spies. And uh, she says, I'll hide you if you will save me and my family and all of those that are with me. And they say, we'll make this deal with you. And so here's where the count comes in. It's from Joshua 2, verses 4 through 6. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the man came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Line number one. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Line number two. Where the men went, I do not know. Line number three. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. Line number four. But she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Despite these lies, the Bible commends her for what she did, just as it does on numerous occasions where people lie to preserve life. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is the hall of fame of all of the great faithful people of the past in the Bible, it says these words about Rahab. But by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. The very part of the account where she lied is the part that she's commended for. That tells us that there is a priority in every single thing that we do, and there is a hierarchy of the standards that we're to submit to. The saving of life is more important than the telling of a lie in order to save that life. In the case of Abraham, he didn't even lie. He just said, this is my sister, which was true. And there is a very good life application here and one that we need to note. Faithful people in the past throughout history have lied in order to hide things or they have fought against oppressive governments. If you think of the people that hid the Jews during Nazi Germany, unless you're in Iran, nobody thinks that they did wrong. They did the right thing. They preserved the life of these people. And we think of our founding fathers when they rebelled against the tyranny of England. There is a hierarchy and we need to contemplate and we need to evaluate that hierarchy against the Bible and we need to know how to act. And if you don't think that we need to know these things and be ready for them in our lifetime, you haven't opened your eyes. I got to tell you what, if we make the wrong decision the next four years, we as Christians are going to have to make strong moral choices. And if you don't know your Bible, you are not going to know what to do. And don't email Charlie, because what do I do every single day on Facebook and around the world? I tell people, read your Bible. Don't email me. You need to know your Bible yourself, okay? This is the most important document on the face of the planet for us knowing how to interact with other people, how to be responsible in front of God, and how to make these moral choices. So please read your Bible. I've said this almost every sermon of my life. I'll say it again. If you read your Bible 30 minutes a day, it will take you 154 days to read your entire Bible. It takes 77 hours to read it out loud continuously. So 30 minutes a day, 154 days, you can know your Bible twice in one year, okay? Nobody here has an excuse for not reading it 30 minutes a day. I guarantee you play the Wii or the iPad or whatever else at least 30 minutes a day. Please read your Bible. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place. Wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. I'm going to give you a very interesting aspect of this verse, which you may or you may not care deadly about. But I got to tell you what, this is one of the greatest joys of going through the Bible for these sermons and learning them in the Hebrew as I'm going and learning all of the details of what God wants us to know from these things. 
This is one of only a handful, and I mean literally five times in the entire Bible, where the term Elohim, which I've already explained means God, is used in conjunction with a plural verb. You see, your translation here reads, God caused me to wander. But the Hebrew says, the gods caused me to wander. It is plural. It's not singular. Now, there are two questions that come up immediately when we look at that. Why did he say the gods, meaning Abraham? Why do you say the gods caused me to wander? And the second is, why does your Bible translator choose to say God caused me to wander? The premise of the Bible from the very first sentence, and I've already quoted it twice, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, to the very last sentence of the Bible, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. The entire premise of this book is that there is one God, and that is unmistakable. We can't get around that. And so either either Abraham is speaking about the Trinity, or your Bible translator thought he was speaking about the Trinity, or this verse is not speaking about God at all. And I got to tell you what, I prefer the latter. Before I get into this, though, just so you know that the premise is that there is one God in the Bible, we can go to Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, before he gave that commandment, he quoted the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. There is one God. So why does it say the gods? Why did your Bible translator say God? That, to me, is the most important thing that we can come across in this entire sermon, maybe. Abraham, just two verses ago, spoke of God with a singular verb. So either he's confused all of a sudden two verses later, or something else is going on. He said, I thought surely the fear of God was not in this place. That was with a singular verb. And he meant it when he said it. There is one God, and there is one true God. And so what he is saying here is that the gods, not God, the gods, the false gods of Mesopotamia, where he once lived, Ur of the Chaldees, caused him to move from his father's house. That's what's being relayed here. God, the true God, in order to establish Abraham, called him away from those false gods. Abraham is the material cause. Think of him as humanity. Abraham's faith is the formal cause. That's the mode of salvation, faith. It is by faith you are saved, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And then getting away from Abraham Getting Abraham away from the false gods is the efficient cause. That is God's plan of salvation. And a relationship with the one true God for him and for all of his generations after him is the final cause. That is the restoration that the Bible is speaking of. And that is what's going on in this verse right here. And so based on that premise, he explains why Sarah said, I am his sister. The true God has actively called him away from those false gods. But there are false gods all around the land of Canaan as well. These false gods passively necessitated him to say this in order to preserve his life. That's what's going on in this verse. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. Seeing that God, the true God, is on Abraham's side, he gives Abraham all of these gifts. And this is exactly the opposite of what happened back in chapter 12 with Genesis, when Sarah was paid for as a form of payment by Pharaoh for things. But here, they come afterwards. Why? 
because he is getting now what he wanted all along in the first place. He is getting an alliance with Abraham. He wanted that when he took her into his home and the proof of him getting this alliance is found right here in the next verse, verse 15. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. When Abraham was in Egypt and the same thing occurred, Pharaoh took Abraham and he kicked him out of Egypt. He had to go back to Canaan. But here, he not only offers Abraham to stay in Canaan, but he says, take whatever piece of property you want. These two accounts seem very similar when you read them, but when you study them closely, they are exactly the opposite from beginning to end. And these contrasts between these two accounts are here to show us the providential hand of God in his dealing with Abraham and how he is setting up the borders of the land now and establishing a permanent marker in the land of Israel. It's called Beersheba, and it exists to this day 4,000 years later, and that is why this is happening. And there's one other reason why, which I found out this week because I'm preparing Genesis 22 for four weeks from now this past week, and in Genesis 22, I read that it takes three-day journey to get from Beersheba to Jerusalem. Actually, it's two days and you arrive on the third day. And if you know the significance of the third day and what happens in Genesis 22, God has set all of this up to make a beautiful picture of his own son, Jesus Christ, and what he is going to do for us in human history. So just for a moment, I want to stop with all of the analysis, and I want to give you something to consider here. God is using these real people, human beings that lived in time and space, and real events in their lives to ensure that his chosen people will rightfully have access to the land of Israel. And not just access to the land of Israel when they cross the Jordan or when they return 4,000 years later on May 14th of 1948. Instead, he started this plan with the first man on earth to secure this line of people that he's working through so that they will get this land. And if he has done this for people that he knew would reject him, not once, not twice, but they have rejected him all the way through the Bible. If you follow the history of Israel, all the way through the Bible, they just turn their back on him. And he would do this for them. Do you think that his plan and his purposes for you are equally as wonderful and just as binding? God loves you that much that he'd do this. I know that I get long-winded in sermons. You don't need to tell me that. I know that. And I know I get into every single detail. And I pass them on because they are important. You may find them tedious, but I got to tell you what, every single word that is recorded in this book is to show us how absolutely in love with you God is and how absolutely in control of every single detail he is. And thus, his promises to you are absolutely sure. They're more sure than if they're set in concrete. I'll tell you that because you can chip away at concrete. You cannot chip away at the promises of God found in Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you that you would remember this as you go through your struggles, as you go through your pains and your sorrows and through your losses in life, that God is using every one of those things that's happening in your life, whether you realize it or not, for your good and for his glory. So stand fast in that and be absolutely assured that he loves you and that he is working out the same detailed plan in your life that he did right here for Abraham. Verse 16, then he said to Sarah, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. There are a certain number of words and sentences that are scattered through the Bible. And if you know this, it almost seems a little scary, but nobody really knows how to translate them. 
they have no idea. And taking them from Hebrew into English is even more difficult. And if you look at this particular verse in 10 different Bibles, you're going to get 10 different translations unless somebody was just honest and said, I don't know what to say, and they copied somebody else. It's a very difficult verse to translate. But there are a few easy things that we can note from the verse. The first is that Abimelech said to Sarah, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He calls Abraham Sarah's brother, not her husband. In other words, he is saying to her, that it was incumbent on her to tell the truth once she was taken by him. Abimelech is placing the entire blame for what's happened on Sarah, not on Abraham. And he gives the money to Abraham, not to her. And this payment in Hebrew is called kasut and naim. It means literally a covering for the eyes. Just think of a veil over your eyes. It is a way of having everyone involved in this situation simply overlook it. This is not a vindication of Sarah's actions, as this particular translation says. It's not that at all. Abimelech is basically saying, this matter is over. The money is paid. Let's all just forget about it. Verse 16, thus she was rebuked. This is the end of verse 16. It is Sarah who was rebuked. Abimelech disapproved of what she had done. But in order to get the matter resolved and forgotten, the money is paid. And this is certain because the money is brought in when... He is speaking to Sarah about the situation. He's already paid Abraham oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and all of those other things. And he's also given him a choice of where he wants to live. Just go live anywhere you want in the land. You don't have to leave. But once she was taken, it was her obligation to tell the truth about Abraham, that he was not only her brother, but her husband. Instead of doing it, God intervened. According to the Bible, the wrong appears to fall on Sarah not on Abraham. So now you know why I went into that long talk about Abraham many verses ago. It's because the Bible proclaims him a man of faith from beginning to end. Verse 17. So Abraham, this is actually verse 17 and 18, and at the beginning of the sermon I said there were 17 verses that we're going to look at today, and I want to make sure that anybody watching knows that there are 18 verses in uh, chapter 20, not 17. Verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all of the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Once again, the term Ha Elohim, or the God, is used. Abraham prayed to the God. This was his job as a prophet, which is mentioned all the way back up in verse 7, when it said, He is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. And this also explains what that means. He would die literally. God would take his life but he would also die in the sense that he would have no children to be born for him if he didn't restore Sarah to Abraham. Once he prayed for them, they were able to bear children again and his name would live on. And this means that God had taken away the ability for conception to occur, not to actually prevent childbirth. When it says the Lord closed up all of the wombs, it means that they could not even conceive So this could have been an affliction in Abimelech, it could have been an affliction in the woman, or it could have been in both of them. Anybody could be involved in that. For all we know, they may have gotten some type of VD from drinking water, or they might have gotten tumors or something. It would keep them from actually being able to come together as, you know, male and female. And this is how God kept him from uniting with Sarah, as it says all the way back up in verse 6. God kept him from touching her because he was physically unable to do so. And finally, we have to mention today 
that the very last verse that we just read brings in for the first time in chapter 20, the divine name Jehovah. It is he who took this action. It is he who brought the malady upon the people to prevent any hindrance of the plan of salvation. In other words, Jehovah is the God of salvation. And he is keeping this union between Sarah and Abimelech to occur so that Isaac will be born of Abraham and of Sarah. Once again, I want to give you something to think about with that particular thought. God did all of this, even keeping these people from the ability to procreate, to protect his plan so that Isaac would come into the world born of Abraham and Sarah and thus lead to Jesus. Every single detail has been minutely handled by a loving God who is observant of everything that's going on around him. And the Savior of you and me came into the world because of this. And without him, we would be eternally condemned. Now, I got to tell you something. Without Jesus, there is no hope. There's no hope at all. What happened to Sodom, and then in this next story, what happens with Abimelech is a picture of what God is doing in human history. In this story, we have the picture of unrepentant life, of sin, and that's Sodom, and that is destruction, and that is a picture of hell. And then we have a picture of the restoration of these people in alliance with God's people. And this is Abimelech, and it's the mercy that he, and thus his entire kingdom, received from the Lord. And that is a picture of restoration through Jesus Christ. And I want to take two minutes of your time, and I want to explain to you how you can accept Jesus Christ if you never have. You see, what the Bible proclaims, as I already said when we were talking from our uh, New Testament reading, is that we sinned already. We're already condemned because of Adam and what Adam has done. We inherited Adam's sin. We can't go back before Adam because time is running in this direction. But God created time, and therefore he is outside of time. And so what he did, this infinite creator stepped into the time that he created and he united in the womb of Mary. And so Jesus Christ was conceived fully God because his father is God and fully man because his mother is a human being. He is the God man. And what he can do is he can go back before the sin of Adam and he can prevail over the sin of Adam in this time-space continuum. And by doing that, he can put his hand on top of little old you, finite and fallen, and he can put his hand on his infinite father, glorious and grateful, and he can be the mediator, the bridge back to him. And this is what he has done for us. And without that bridge, there is no hope at all. That sin remains on us. So if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible makes it extremely difficult. It says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's all he wants you to do is just simply say, I can't go back and take care of this sin, but I know Jesus can. And so I'm calling on him as Lord. That's not difficult at all. The Lord makes it so easy that we just stumble right over it for our whole life and off to eternity we go without him. I hope that doesn't happen in anybody's life here, but that you will take a moment to just ask Jesus to cleanse you of your sins and to be reconciled to God the Father. He loves you that much. All right, next week, I'm going to be talking on Genesis 21, verses 1 through 8. Only eight verses. It's about the birth of Isaac, and believe it or not, it is a picture of the birth of the church. It's wonderful. It is glorious to see. Anyway, it's called He Brings Laughter, and laughter is his name. So if you're here, please read those eight verses before we come, and I have my last thing to read to you, 
and then we'll take communion and we'll go. This is a poem I wrote, as I do every single week on the verses that we've discussed. This is Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18, Walking in the Land of the Philistines. Abraham journeyed to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur. There he did speak with his mouth that Sarah was his sister, so his safety he would procure. And so Abimelech, king of Gerar, came and took Sarah from her tent. But God said to him by night, a dead man you are, because you took her as yours, and this I will prevent. You see, she is a man's wife, and now you've jeopardized your own life. But Abimelech hadn't come near her, and he said, Adonai, will you slay the righteous nation too? Did he not say she is my sister, and she, he is my brother? Otherwise, I would have said, Adu. In the integrity of my heart, this has come to be, and in the innocence of my hands, this has happened, you see. And God said to him at night in a dream, Yes, I know you did this in integrity of heart, for I have withheld you from sinning. Thus I did deem that you would not touch her right from the start. Now therefore restore the man's wife. You see, he is a prophet who will pray for you to live. But if you don't, it will be the end of your life. You and all who are yours, for her your life will give. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and told all of his servants of God's stern warning. And the men were very much afraid and they wanted the wrath of God to be stayed. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said right to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom such a great sin? You have done something that you certainly shouldn't do. What did you have in view that you have done this thing? It is enough to make my head hurt and my ears to ring. Abraham said, I thought surely the fear of God isn't in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But she truly is my sister. It wasn't a lie from my face. She is the daughter of the father who also gave me life. And she is the daughter of my mother. She isn't the daughter of my mother, though. And she became my wife. Yes, this is so. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house wherever I would go, that I said to her, when we travel here or yonder, that in kindness to me, she would say, this is my brother. It's so. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and servants too, and gave them to Abraham and restored to him his wife. And Abimelech said, See, my land is set before you. Dwell where you find comfort and happiness in your life. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given to your brother a thousand pieces of silver, to him and not another. This is a covering for the eyes of all who are with you and before everybody. Because of this unhappy guise, thus she was rebuked because of deeds kind of gaudy. So Abraham prayed to God and he healed the king and his wife and female servants could once again bear. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs. Yes, he did this thing because of Sarah, Abraham's wife in this matter, he did care. And so the Lord watches over all his chosen people, his adopted children he cares for so tenderly. We can shout out his praise from every roof and every steeple. Oh yes, my God cares so much, even for me. Thank you for your guiding touch upon my soul. Thank you for your hand upon my brothers and sisters too. We can see that you are in complete control. And so we shout aloud all our praises. Oh God, praises to you. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, here we are reading about the life of this man of faith and the details that are given there are so precise. They're so exact. And they tell us, they shout out to us that you are in control and that you have our miserable lives full of neuro neuroses and troubles and trials and pains and sorrows and slips and errors and loss, everything that we do wrong, 
everything that happens that brings us down is all within your control and that you are going to take those things and work us into a beautiful sculpted piece and you'll set us in your eternal heavenly realms and we won't worry about those things anymore but we'll see the beauty of what you've done and why they've occurred at that time and we thank you for that we thank you that you are this god of complete precision and control and we thank you above all for the gift of jesus christ our lord and savior and it's in his name we pray amen Amen.